Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing, the good, the bad and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who've done some amazing things in policing. And I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised as some of the topics can be distressing and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello folks, a very warm welcome back to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast, Ian here. This is episode 46. Just back from Northern Ireland, a uh, very nice long weekend there with uh, family and uh, yeah, for anyone who's never been to Northern Ireland, um, yeah, you should go because it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful and uh, very peaceful, very civilised, uh, stunning countryside, fantastic beaches. And they've got tater cheese and onion crisps as well, which uh, is just the icing on the cake as far as I'm concerned. Uh, which is very um, appropriate because this week uh, we've got a really fascinating interview with Stephen White. Now, Stephen White is the chairman, I hope I'm getting this right, of the Royal Ulster Constabulary George Cross Foundation. So uh, just to explain for those who are unfamiliar with the history, uh, the Royal Ulster Constabulary uh, was founded uh, almost exactly 100 years ago in June 1922. And then uh, 302 of their officers, men and women, were murdered um, by terrorists uh, between 1969 and 1998. And uh, many, many more suffered very, very serious and often life-changing uh, injuries as a result of murderous attacks on them by uh, predominantly Republican terrorist organizations, including the Provisional IRA, the INLA and dissident um, Republican organizations. And in 1998, the, sorry, I got that wrong, 1999, the RUC was awarded the George Cross collectively in recognition of the, I'll quote this from their website, awarded the George Cross in recognition of the collective and sustained bravery of the force, including its families. And that's an incredibly important point to make that uh, not only did the families suffer very much as a result of all of that um, behavior, psychopathic and murderous behavior, uh, very often those officers were actually murdered uh, in front of their wives, husbands, children family members at their homes. Um, so uh, I'm absolutely delighted to be uh, given the opportunity to speak to Stephen. He's a retired uh, assistant chief constable from the RUC and he's gone on to do some really amazing things uh, in his life post-policing which you'll hear all about. So 
not only is it an absolute pleasure to interview him, but it's also a pleasure to do something, albeit a very small thing, in recognition of 100 years uh, commemoration of the uh, of the, the Royal Ulster Constabulary. So um, before we go into that interview, just worth touching on one or two things. Um, so this week just gone was the week in which, uh, sadly, the Metropolitan Police was put into special measures by the Inspectorate of Constabulary. Uh, and there was a whole sort of uh, litany of issues highlighted by the Inspectorate some of which were around performance, some of which were around the sheer number and seriousness of the bad news stories surrounding the Met over the last sort of, I don't know, 12, 18 months, I suppose. Um, and that's caused a great deal of uh, heartache uh, amongst those who have been part of the Met, uh, past and present, uh, including myself. And, um, and whilst you could look at that as a uh, sort of an administrative issue in order to try and improve the performance of the organization. Uh, it's symbolically, I would suggest, a very serious matter in that the Met uh, was sort of deemed to be, I suppose, the shining beacon of excellence of policing uh, globally. Uh, it was the home of the uh, police service back in 1829 when Sir Robert Peel created the police service and um and certainly it's had a very sort of auspicious position in the world of uh, law enforcement generally so to see that organization being put into special measures has been very very um difficult i suppose um what what i did uh it might be worth just having a look at the blog i wrote a rather than sort of um, bang on on this podcast about what I said about that. It might be better if you actually go and, and read it. So um, I wrote a blog um, called It's Not Just the Met, Should the Whole of UK Policing Now Be in Special Measures? And if you go to my website, which is www.tjfbook, all one word, tjfbook.com, and then navigate to the blog section, you'll find the blog there. And uh, yeah, it's been read by many hundreds of people. And I've had some nice, uh, nice feedback from lots of people about that. Um, yeah, in my usual style, fairly uncompromising and hard hitting, I suppose. So, yeah, go and read that and um, yeah, tell me what you think. Right. We'll get into the interview with Steve. Can you hear me now, Ian? I certainly can. There we go. Thanks. Good morning. No, a little I, signal came up and said the host is not allowing you to on. You, 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 you must have control of you. No, I, I, uh, I think it's got a mind of its own. Quite honestly, sometimes uh, a lot of these platforms. So, um, yeah. Uh, do you want to switch your camera on, or have you got a camera on your? I hope so. Ah, uh, there we go. Look I at you, it. handsome chap that you are. <laughs> Obviously, you need your eyesight tested again. <laughs> So how are you? It's very lovely to uh, lovely to have you on the podcast, Stephen. Yeah, I'm a bit sleepy, to be honest. My wife and I have had a very busy few days. We were over in England at the National Memorial Arboretum and our flight was delayed at 3am in the morning. Oh, so we got that. back in the early hours of Saturday and we both had an early start uh, Saturday and yesterday. So 
She's having a bit of a lie in. So right. Oh, my goodness. Got me to yourself now. Well, it sounds like you've had a very busy weekend and uh, a lot going on. And I look forward to hearing later on, we'll hear a little bit about, about the, the reason for that. I mean, uh, as I explained in our sort of introductory um, quick call, uh, I was really keen to do something to sort of uh, mark the 100th anniversary of the um, creation of the Royal Ulster Constabulary. So, um, yeah, as a as a as an Ulsterman myself, like yourself, uh, you know, I thought that would be a nice thing to do. Um, well, that'd be nice. Just before we start, I, I didn't get your first email, but it may have gone to spam. I've just spent the last ten minutes <laughs> finding about two dozen messages, some of them quite important, one from the Daily Mail about the centenary that all went to spam. Oh, God. Yeah, so, I know. Well, that's a th problem, isn't it? They can be a bit overzealous, can't they, the spam filters? Um, I'd love to say I know how to uh, fix that, but unfortunately, I suffer from exactly the same thing sometimes, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah. It's just it's a case of uh, maybe checking spam a bit more <laughs> rigorously than I do at the moment. No problem at all. But um, so... Um, like quite a few people I've spoken to recently on the podcast, um, you know, when I, when I look at your sort of CV on on LinkedIn or whatever, I, I I just think, oh my goodness, this person has done more stuff around policing than you could shake a stick at, and you must have you must have forty eight hours in your day compared to the twenty four that the rest of it have because you've had a very full and interesting career. So. So, yeah, so as I spoke on the phone, um, you know, a week ago or so, um, it'd be really interesting to um, talk about your career, you know, what took you into policing in the first place, some of the highs and lows that you experienced along the way. But for the purposes of people who don't know who you are, um, do you want to just sort of briefly introduce yourself in terms of your background and what you're doing now? Sure. So are we starting? You're recording this now as we go? Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well, good morning, Ian, and it's a pleasure to meet you. Thanks for the opportunity to um, share with your listeners a few thoughts and a few highlights, perhaps, of my experiences. I was um, born in 1954 in a probably quite idyllic situation, stable family, lots of friends and relatives, uh, and in a time in Northern Ireland was relatively peaceful and prosperous. My grandfather had worked in the shipyards in East Belfast. He had worked on the Titanic and many other ships. My father had come back from World War II, having served in the fleet air arm, fighting the Japanese. And um, he was employed in the shipyard. I grew up literally in the shadows of those big cranes and mm -hmm. all the machinery and buildings in the Harland and Wolf shipyard. Um, I was relatively successful in my school days. My mother was one of these people who would probably be called a tiger mom these days. Mm. Uh, education, education, education was what she drummed into us all. And uh, yeah. I was fortunate to be the first child to go to grammar school and then uh, university. So which school so did you go to in Belfast? I went to Grosvenor High, um, Grosvenor. Strand Primary, then Grosvenor High. And mm. um, the high school then was very much in the sort of forefront of that development of state grammar schools where, you know, we were getting Latin, Greek, other modern languages, Roman history, history, all English history, very little Irish history. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I sort of rebelled like a lot of kids once you hit your teenage 
things were starting to happen in Northern Ireland. You had the swinging 60s. And then, of course, sadly, 68, 69, you had the, the trouble. So I was a young teenager, 14, mm. 15, when sadly, you know, murders were happening. Bombs were going off, bombing off outside the school. Three people killed themselves transporting a bomb. You know, those, those things mm. were happening yeah. in my early to mid-teenage. So I think that certainly shaped me in that my father had been a part-time police officer. Right. And in 1969, he was mobilised, like a lot of uh, part-time police were drafted in to deal with the civil emergency. So I saw him and uh, many others like him as the heroes, the protectors, yeah. the people that were getting hammered and um, injured while trying to do their duty. So in a sense, my perception mm. of policing has always been shaped by that. Yeah. Uh, when I was in the police, and we can get into this later perhaps, yeah, yeah. it always amazed me that there were so many people who did not see the police from my perspective. But yeah. as I've got older and wiser, you realise that <laughs> you know we're all conditioned. We're yes. all... Uh, shaped by our environment, our context, our culture, That's and right. indeed our, our relatives and family. Yes, yes, yes. So, uh, so my um, my grandfather um, was a member of the RIC, the Royal Irish Constabulary, uh -huh. and he was he was stationed uh, down in Newry, I believe. Um, and uh, my father was was born in 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 Keady in County Armagh, and then uh, moved up to. Um, Belfast and Lisburn where I grew up and um so I've got a very good friend who's a who's head of modern languages at Grosvenor High in oh, Belfast right. yeah. yeah yeah and I I went to friends in, in Lisburn so so yeah it's a, and this is the thing that people don't realize who don't come from Northern Ireland is the quality of education in Northern Ireland is second to none and yeah I think I would argue that probably you know some of the best schools in in the UK I would suggest you know but, well, that's uh, true. And those records over the years have proved that, you know, with um, numbers mm. of A-level passes, number going into tertiary education and so on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you joined. Um, so what year did you join the RUC then? Well, be before that, I had a strange, I suppose, few years. Although I did well at school, uh, I was a bit rebellious. I was smoking, riding motorbikes, interested <laughs> in girls, music, all that sort of thing. And mm. School to me was uh, like an interference almost. Yeah. And unlike yeah. a lot of young men uh, who I went to school with who went straight into university at 18, I had that sort of work ethic drummed into me that, you know, it's about time you started contributing to the household. Right. So I left school and started working for a big pharmaceutical company, Glaxo, right. uh, as a trainee manager. So for two years, I was sponsored by them to do a, a part-time certificate in business studies Mm. But while working in that factory, and I did like three months on the factory floor, three months with the accounts, three months with the sales team, mm. etc. Um, someone approached me and said, you know, have you ever thought of joining the Ulster Defence Regiment? Mm. And that was the part time uh, British Army Regiment. In fact, mm. it became the big, biggest British Army Regiment they had. Um, so they were recruiting men and women from Ulster to supplement both the regular army and the, the mm. police who were trying to keep Northern Ireland on a somewhat even keel. So I joined, um, I'd been a Boy Scout, I'd worn uniform in many yeah. shapes and forms. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it appealed to me. And I have to be honest, it's probably the best decision I've ever made in my life. It um, nice. made me the man I am. It was uh -huh. a recruiting ground for the RUC uh -huh. and for four and a half happy years because I then left my occupation 
went to Queen's University to do business studies, business administration, yeah. and continued within the Austrian Defence Regiment, working maybe four nights a week, weekends and summer holidays. So unlike unlike joining the territorial army in, in mainland UK, you know, the yeah. EDR were actually deployed operationally every time they went, they were on duty, weren't they, I suppose? That's right. And, you know, they were being murdered in large numbers and uh, especially on the border where their task was very different from those of us who lived in the city. Mm. We were deployed to work with the regular army as guides, whether it be in helicopters or foot patrols. Mm -hmm. um, and where were you? Where were you working around Belfast? Or I was in Castlereagh. Um, and uh, what was called Echo Company, E Company of a Italian that had six companies, uh, Newton Ars, Hollywood, mm. Belfast. And um, I was offered a commission within six weeks. The mm. company commander said, you've got A-levels, young man. Mm -hmm. You should go to Sandhurst. And I had no yeah. idea what a commission was or where Sandhurst was, but yeah. I preferred to stay um, with the ground troops. and right. went through the training for Lance Corporal, Corporal, Platoon Sergeant. And I think that's where I learned my management skills those right. that I have <laughs> I had role models which were absolutely superb believe it or not you know I keep reminding people the troubles as we call them in Northern Ireland started in 1969 that was only uh, 24 years after the end of World War II uh -huh. so you had men who had served as young men in World War II yeah still in military positions whether it be full-time or part-time yeah uh, so for example my staff sergeant had been evacuated from Dunkirk he then wow. landed in Arnhem with the gliders uh, and the invasion there. Uh, my platoon sergeant had fought in Aden and Palestine and oh. Korea, you know, so... It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, so people forget, you know, just how, for, for a start, how long ago the trouble started. Yeah, 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 yeah. There are probably two generations that don't even remember them anymore. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Um, yeah so I, I learned my trade uh, as a soldier and had a, uh, an inclination to become a, a, a regular soldier. But mm -hmm. then when I graduated from Queens, by that time I'd met my future wife and mm -hmm. um, decided to stay at home and, and join the Royal Ulster Constabulary. So it was a bit, bit, a bit convoluted. I was never... Yeah. Um, well, one of my uh, one of my earliest memories, um, you know, or certainly most memorable memories is when I was probably about nine or 10, being taken to a guy's house who my father used to work for. My father used to work in Gresham, Street in Belfast, and oh, yeah. uh, in a uh, in the you know he was a sort of an area sales manager for a life assurance company. He travelled all over Northern Ireland doing that, but his office was in Belfast, and um, which eventually got blown up. And I remember that very well as well. It was it was it was um, Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve, kind of one of the two, and the office got blown up, and that was it. He was working from home from then on, but um, mm -hmm. but no, he took he took me and my brother to. Uh, a friend of his who he worked with who was in the UDR and yeah. we got we got to play with his Sterling submachine gun which I remember at the time as, as a child you know the, the weight of the bloody thing it was so heavy you know and pointing it at, at, at uh, you know at his garden and you know what I mean it's crazy when you think about it now isn't it oh yeah it was uh, strange times that's for sure especially as a teenager you know so a lot of my friends I was big into football in those days motorcycling and all the usual things that teenagers do but yeah I suppose the army took over quite a bit and uh, I suppose that's an extension of the, the sense of duty you know to me it was the right thing to do and, and yes. uh, without getting too moralistic mm. or on a high horse I, I genuinely yeah. believe you know yeah deciding to put a uniform on in Northern Ireland was certainly certainly for me much more than just a job looking for payment.
Right. So what year then did you actually uh, join up as a sort of full-time REC officer? Yeah, I joined uh, July 1978, but two weeks after I graduated from Queen's, I was straight into the depot. Right. So that was, um, those were dark days, weren't they, in Northern Ireland? Um, yeah. Certainly all the way through, because it was sort of the pre- hunger strike days so it was very very um dangerous time wasn't it um to be it was a tough time you know on my first station was a place called dunmurray in south belfast and Mm. in those days they covered a lot of the new estates both nationalist and Mm. uh, unionist estates Mm. um seymour hill woodburn area lenadoon twinbrook um areas that for some people was uh was pole glass uh, was pole glass built in those days or pole glass was just starting Right. There was a, a plan, I think, and um, probably infrastructure was going in, but Twinbrook was relatively new in those days, and that's where Bobby right. Sands came from, yeah. since you mentioned the hunger strike, you know, because mm. the day he died is is one that's etched in my mind, um, mm. which you can maybe get into in due course. Yeah, well, I grew up in Lambeg, uh, which is just up the road, as you know. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, yeah, you really were, uh, even as a teenager, um, you, you were sort of... Um, uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't get me wrong. I loved growing up in Northern Ireland, and it was a great place. And you know, apart from the political turmoil and the terrorism and everything, every, apart as you say, apart from that. But apart from that, it was a great place to grow oh, up. Yeah. And um, and I I had a I had a great life there, and um, did a lot of outdoor stuff. And um, but but certainly, I, I remember as a teenager, um, you know, you you kind of were. I'll tell you a funny story. Um, there's uh, you were kind of caught between the two communities because we were very much a sort of a middle-class family living in a relatively peaceful middle-class area um but obviously on one end of the geography where we lived you had places like Paul Glass and Twinbrook which were you know sort of nationalist republican um estates and then you had as you say places like Seymour Hill and Dunmurray that had and and um uh, you know, other places that sort of had more of a sort of an, uh, a middle town and place like that it was all the, the curbstones were painted yep. red, red, white and blue. And the flags, as they say, were, would, would be up wow. most of the year. And, um, uh, you know, as a, as a sort of a fairly as a grammar school boy growing up in that area, you were equally vulnerable to both sides. I suppose that's what I'm saying. And uh, I remember once my brother, it was so funny because um, my brother ended up joining the police as well. And uh, he one day he took a notion, as I say, Northern Ireland and painted his bike, uh, repainted his racing bike. And he painted um, the I mean, I'm not interested in the, the politics of the religion. I mean, I'm a Protestant and, you know, I'm from that sort of that sort of background, I suppose. But he was quite naive, I suppose. He painted the frame of the bike yellow and then he put on white mud guards, And then he put green handlebar tape around it and thought it looked very nice you know green so anybody listening to thinking what are you talking about green white and gold is obviously the the colors of the irish republic and he then rode his bike um feeling very pleased with himself through a local loyalist estate and he got kicked off his bike from somebody who said don't you ever ride that fenian bike through here again you know what i mean (laughs) and that's the thing that's people don't get it do they who don't understand the politics of it you know no i'm sure we've all our own some very sad some very yeah oh definitely. memories of things like that happening you know i mean oh, i had yeah. one of the i've been interviewed many times about motivations about joining the police and why you take the risks you do and 
Mm. I always go back to a friend of mine called Dennis O'Flaherty. Dennis was the only Catholic in a very loyalist housing estate. We were in the Cubs and the Scouts together. Mm. He spent every Saturday travelling to watch Glen Torrent Football Club, home and away. Mm. Yeah. And when the troubles broke, uh, he probably was 15. Mm. And before the UDA arrived, you had tartan gangs in a lot of the areas in mm. Belfast. Mm. And the Newtonards uh, rode tartan gang was called the young newton right and they came into our youth club sitting in methodist what could be nice in mm. uh, a little church hall where we played five-a-side football they came in six of them thugs with mm. their bobber boots kicked them senseless and uh, then the girls beat up the girl that he was going with because she was a protestant he was catholic oh. and i stood there to my horror i was afraid to intervene because mm. i just wasn't yeah, yeah yeah i felt capable of doing anything and yeah, yeah my yeah. shame to this day that memory haunts me that I didn't. I'd rather have, it'd probably been easier to get beaten up with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And have yeah, the yeah. conscience of not stepping yeah, in. So yeah, yeah, I've yeah. taken uh, the stand many a time as, as, as a police officer, delighted that we're maybe putting the bully boys away. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, no, it was, there's no question about it. Um, it was violence. It was sort of almost in the DNA there. And, uh, and obviously that became, you know, more so as the years went on. But so, uh, so where was your first posting then uh, when you joined so the Dunmur Dun Murray as a probationer. Oh, sorry, yeah, Dunmurray, yeah, yeah. And I had this excellent sergeant who was everything I suppose I've tried to be mm. uh, encapsulated in, in, in this little man. I'm not particularly tall for a police officer. Mm. Little man with a big personality. He mm. led from the front. So visible leadership is probably one of the most important things I believe in. Mm. Uh, he was a good role model. He was active. He was a worker. He yeah. supervised. He didn't sit in the in the station when things were tough. He was leading from the front, mm -hmm. and um, I only realised how good he was when, after about a year and a half, he was replaced by a, a less active, mm. uh, less inspirational sergeant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who helped me in, in a different way because he yeah. said, "Steve, I've known as Stevie by a lot of people. He said Stevie boy. He said I have uh, ideas that you're going to go well in this job and." Um, I could help you if you do all the uh, other police constables' files and check them for mm. legislation and grammar and uh, evidence. This will mm. be great training for you. So mm. while he was putting his feet up in night shift, yeah. <laughs> but I have to say he was right. Yeah, yeah, I learned yeah, yeah. more, if you can imagine, dealing with 20 constables' files as opposed to just your own. That's right. Uh, but yeah, he was yeah. a lazy, uh, you know what. But um, Yeah, yeah. Well, as you say, um, there's two things there, isn't there? Firstly... Um, it exposes you to, it puts you into a position of leadership, albeit um, not in a formal sense, um, but it also uh, allows you to see what you don't want to be, doesn't it? Uh, you look at that and you think, oh, well, yeah. that's not the sort of leader or supervisor I want to be. So it sort of inspires you as well in a weird sort of way, doesn't it? Well, you're absolutely right. And, you know, the old thing about a wise man learns from his mistakes but an even wiser man learns from other people's mistakes and, and <laughs> that's, right. that's that's definitely the case and, and in fact without going too far ahead i mean i lecture as you know at numerous universities and mm -hmm. quite often i think a picture tells a thousand words you know i'll put up photographs of people whether they be constable or chief constable mm -hmm. people who i've worked with over the years and the good examples and the bad examples and yeah. try to use those as illustrations and quite often it's the bad examples yeah really make the point yeah yeah definitely and, and the number of people who i've spoken to in policing over the years who've said the same thing that 
the, the reason they took promotion was because they got so frustrated at having such terrible manager, you know, and I thought, well, if they are in that position, then I can do a much better job. And, and that inspires you, doesn't it, very often? Absolutely. Well, that, that's very much my story as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. So um, you're obviously, I mean, you obviously finish your finish your career. Uh, don't worry, I've got a lot to cover before you get there. You finish your career as an assistant chief constable, isn't that right? Um, yeah. Um, so you so you clearly were on a trajectory career wise. Um, so where when how long did you remain a constable before you took the sergeant's exam? Uh, immediately two years. As soon as I had finished my probation, I passed the sergeant's exam and was in the top ten. I think it was number three or number four, something like that, in the force. And if you were in the top 10, you were highlighted for at least an interview, a force interview, right? to see if you were worthy of being nominated to the national system for accelerated promotion. Right. So I was sent to Bramshill then. Well, before that, three days in Preston, they did this national selection. I think it's now called PNAC, Police National Assessment Centre, but those yeah. days it's called something else. And... Um, you underwent three days of interviews and psychological tests and mm -hmm. intelligence tests, probably not as sophisticated as they do today, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah. it's quite intensive. And um, mm -hmm. I was fortunate to be selected for what they called in those days the special course, which yeah. meant you, said yeah. you spent a year as a sergeant at Brahms Hill. And my contemporaries were Paul Stevenson, who went in to lead the Met, um, people like uh, Matt Baggett and Hugh Ord, who went on to lead Northern Ireland Policing. Right. And, uh, in fact, most of us did reasonably well. Uh -huh. Well, that's uh, that's interesting because it's as you know uh, that that whole process has has had various iterations along the way over the years, hasn't it? And um, mm -hmm. yeah, and again, and I've made I made this point in my book that um, you get a real mixed bag there, don't you? You get some people who are um, clearly very bright, but operationally perhaps not the best uh, others who are exceptional kind of in almost every way and uh, sort of everything in between haven't you um so uh so where did you where was your first posting as a sergeant then i went down to the city center musgrave street right uh, if you permit me i'm going to tell you a little story of course for my constableship which i think i've probably relayed a hundred times but it's mm -hmm. an illustration of what flexibility was required of, of Northern Ireland police officers. At 17 minutes past one on the 5th of May, mm. 1981, Bobby Sands died. Mm. First hunger striker in that wave of hunger strike campaign. Mm. And <clears throat> like a lot of young men, I was in Derry in an all-male, uh, what they call shadow mobile support unit. We were supporting mm. the, um, the SBG-style mobile reserves. And mm -hmm. we were sent out in the street immediately uh, in Derry. And the Black Flag Parade started hundreds of people mourning Bobby Sands. And uh, I remember an ITV commentator standing beside me saying, son, get yourself ready, because here they come. And it was mm. that eerie silence yeah. as marcher after marcher passed us. And then, of course, all hell broke loose when the riots began. Mm -hmm. But we were only there for a day or two when we were called back to Dunmurray. And you would mm. remember this if you're from that area. Mm. The DeLorean factory. That's was, right. Um, Heal is a great uh, investment coup for Northern mm. Ireland. And we had the test track in the manufacturing factory yeah. in our patch. And it was being attacked, albeit that was giving employment to the area. People from Twinbrook and further afield were coming to destroy the factory. So we were sent in to protect it. Mm -hmm. And it's the first time I came under fire. A uh, mm. gunman opened up on 
my patrol when we were in the test track. There's bullets mm. firing over our heads, and myself mm. and another guy with military background tried to get shots back. Mm. Um, it was too difficult, too dangerous because there were crowds around. And mm. anyway, we didn't return fire. But in the aftermath of all that, um, I remember a sergeant coming along and telling us we were being relieved from duty. And at which point he got hit with a a ball bearing from a catapult and squealed and yelled, uh, thinking he'd been shot. Uh, it was right. yeah, yeah. black humour, you know, we were making, yeah, making yeah, fun yeah. of him. All, all, all that stuff that goes on when you're a constable and having fun at the, the yeah. sergeant's expense. But anyway, we're called back to base, weary, tired, exhilarated, mm. all those things. Mm. And uh, the sergeant said to me, White, tomorrow morning, come in with your best uniform on, butch bulls, you're taking the local Seymour Hill Primary School students, uh, kids for their cycling proficiency test. It's oh, mad, so isn't it? One minute you're in what is I a know. you know pretty dangerous and challenging situation. Yeah. Uh, in the back of a land over knee deep in empty cases and batten rounds and so on. Yeah. And then you're uh, taking kids through their Tufty Club safety <laughs> and cycling proficiency <laughs> test. And that is ex- and that was the norm. That was exactly what we were after. I know. And at the drop of a hat, counterterrorism, yeah. firearms response. Yeah, well, it's just in. It's just I think insane, that says everything. And, yeah, and, yeah. And sadly, as you would know, not everyone was cut out for that. Uh, I was an old man when I joined the police. I was twenty-three. Yeah. My uh, contemporaries were eighteen. Right. So I had a bit of maturity. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And I think I could manage the situation pretty well. But a lot of young men, in particular between suicides, alcoholism, mm-hmm. or the dark side of, mm-hmm. of uh, mental well-being yeah, or lack yeah. of. Yeah, yeah. It manifest as well. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, we'll come on, I'm sure, to talk about all that stuff in terms of, you know, the the kind of the legacy, I suppose, the psychological and physical, emotional legacy of, of you know, all of those years of turmoil and strife. Um but no, you're absolutely right. And that's the thing about policing. I'd say sort of not, you know, I think what you've described there is, is extreme, um, but, but certainly my experience and the experience of many people who spent a long time in policing is that is that you do have to have that mental agility, I suppose, to be able to deal with something that could be really quite shocking um, and traumatic and then to deal with something that requires a great deal of um you know communication skills and sensitivity and compassion and all of that and it's it's a terri- you know terrifically challenging job isn't it um on all sorts of levels so um so yeah so you as a as a sergeant um you sorry you just remind me where you went to as a sergeant then yeah i went to city center the biggest station in belfast which was musgrave street and right. on day one uh car bomb blew up in the car park of the police station um there had been access gained mm through the back door of a pub, which actually led into the back of the police station. Someone had gone in and left a bomb underneath a, a Royal Military Police vehicle and it was blown sky high. Uh, so that was my introduction to city centre policing. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? So at that age, that time, let me think. So I was born in 65. So I was, what, about 16 or something like that around that time. And yeah, I can remember very well, you know, going into Belfast on the train uh, getting the train from Lambeg into the city centre, and yeah, the um, you know the, the the security gates and the army and the police, and sure. um, you know it was, but in a funny sort of way. And this is the thing, isn't it? You know, when you grow up in that environment and you take it for granted, that um, I I don't ever remember really giving it a second thought. You know, 
it was just what it was just the normal for people growing up there wasn't it but um but the reality is we weren't putting our lives on the line every day of the week the way that you were and mm. um and as you know at that time there was there was never a day that went by without there being something on the news about a shooting or a bombing or multiple shootings and bombings yeah. almost every day of the week wasn't there no that's that, that's true <clears throat> although you're talking about your 15, 16 year old period. I mean, when I was that age, I was for, I, I seemed to chum about with guys who were always a couple of years older than me, and they mm. in many sense protected me. You know, we'd we'd go into town and they were all working when I was at school and they'd treat me to a, a burger or they'd mm. 45 single or mm-hmm. a few cigarettes or whatever. And they yeah. were always protective of me, but we're always streetwise. Yeah, we knew where to go, where not to go. Some of these guys that I talked about with, they could handle them. So we weren't a gang as such. We weren't a, yeah, yeah. Uh, we weren't nasty. We're actually quite modest. And in you know, we went to which we went to church. We went to your yeah, youth yeah. club. We were involved with the Boy Scouts. But because they were from East Belfast and were housing estates, I think we all knew how to handle ourselves, or at least how to stay out of trouble. Mm. So I think that street wisdom, um, I inherited that, and, and when I was in the police. Again, you know where you can walk. I used to love walking through the city centre on my own. I'd never, ever yeah. had a beat as a constable. Yeah. Never once patrolled on my own as a police officer. Yeah. Uh, it was always in landovers full of five or six people yeah. or in double landover patrols or with military patrols. Mm. Um, so the, the freedom of being a sergeant walking through Musgrave Street, looking mm. into the windows of Woolworths or whatever big shop was there and seeing those gold stripes on my arm, you know, it, yeah. was, a, it was a bit of pride and a bit of, um, uh, I suppose... The fascination of being the sheriff of the of the city centre, but mm. the difference is in every street corner, and in, especially at night, you had Land Rovers full of military, military police, UDR, RUC. So you never felt alone. It was an issue yeah. that you had to deal with. Yeah, you could get back up very quickly, and that's that's a great sense of security. At least I always felt that that you were part of something. Mm. Um, I don't believe in this. You know the way there's. Talk about, uh, I think there's a documentary about New York Police Department, the biggest gang. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't believe police officers are a gang in the mm-hmm. sense that, I mean, obviously there's bad policing and bad police officers. Yeah. But that idea of the brotherhood and sisterhood of policing, where when an officer's down, mm-hmm. you can call for help. I, that was something that always gave me great um uh, a great feeling when I was a police officer. Yeah. So the so the thing that we always find when I joined the police and I would speak to people, friends of mine who, because I joined the Met in London and um, just because I, I met an English girl when I was at university and um, yeah, and you know ended up staying and albeit I wanted at one point to come back and join the RUC, um, but it just never happened. Um, the one thing that we used to always wonder about as English police officers. Uh, doing a more traditional policing role, I suppose, was to what extent in those days were you able to do, in inverted commas, normal policing? In other words, responding to uh, crimes in action or um, dealing with uh, volume crime, low-level offenders or uh, domestic disputes and all of the sort of bread and butter of Mm -hmm. traditional policing. Uh, as opposed to responding to the security emergency. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it's just the, I suppose, the, the, the big question. And there are those who would say, the critics, 
we never did policing. You were a security mm. force. Mm. You were a, a force for subjugation and sectarianism mm. and all the, the, the nasty things that we are accused of, whereas mm. other people from different part of the city or different experience of police officers will say, well, my only interactions with police officers was when I was clipped around the ear for kicking a football where I shouldn't have been or mm. riding a motorbike too fast or whatever. So I think there's a number of, that's a quite a, a simple question, but there's a lot of complexities around it. Mm. So my answer would be, absolutely, we did ordinary policing. Did we do it in the normal way that it happened in the leafy suburbs of Hampshire or wherever? No. Um, even in the quieter parts of Belfast or the countryside or the second big city, Londonderry, there were areas within the cities, areas within the countryside where you could be more relaxed in your response. But at the same time, you're always wondering, is this a legitimate call? Yeah. Am I possibly being drawn into what we call a come on? Mm. Uh, and when you start looking at how officers died, mm. how the murders took place, quite often they were responding to yeah. reports of a road traffic accident. Yeah. In fact, one tragic case where they're actually delivering a death message, mm. the terrorists would have known that following uh, the death of someone, police would come to deliver the sad news yeah. and they were waiting and then killed the police officers who were delivering the death message. So constantly, whether it be a road traffic accident, whether it be a report of domestic abuse, um, you had to be, you know, put your thinking hat on before you responded. Sometimes yeah. that meant going in numbers, yeah, two or three police vehicles uh, with plenty of officers to stand at street corners with machine guns or rifles to protect the one constable who was going to deal with the call. Yeah. Sometimes it, it meant military cover, 16 mm. soldiers in West Belfast, where I worked as an inspector, going to every call with helicopter top cover. Um, so sometimes uh, an incident maybe took three days before you could respond. Mm. And people perhaps don't realize that even to serve a summons or, or to um, take a witness statement, um, maybe perhaps requested by a, a, an English police uh, force who had stopped a, a Northern Ireland person or had an inquiry about a Northern Ireland police vehicle mm -hmm. to do a simple task like going into an area uh, and uh, meeting someone and always it was a pre-arranged meeting that was always the fear yeah. that people knew you were coming right. that meant the terrorists have time to take over the house facing it mm -hmm. uh, and ambush the patrol going in or yeah. put a device uh, in, in, a, in a situation where the car was going, the police car was going to be parked, mm. or worse, a tertiary, a secondary or tertiary device, because the terrorists got more and more sophisticated, knowing that we would put out cordons, inner cordons, outer cordons, before yeah. we would even respond to these things. So yeah. the bottom line is, I I believe we, unlike today, and I, and I suppose I get on my hobby horse today about mm. the visibility of policing and the mm. response to calls, Northern Ireland Police went to every call. Mm. Every call, and there were a number of reasons for that. One was to obviously keep the flag flying, and that we were uh, 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 an ordinary police service, mm. albeit in extraordinary circumstances. But also to engage with the public, yeah, not to have that wedge driven between us, which obviously mm. terrorists wanted to. It's, it's easier to demonise and dehumanise, and yeah. use that obscene title, call police officers legitimate targets, yeah. um, when there's no engagement. Yeah, which is why to be serious in, in some of the research that's been done when you look at the statistics even back when uh Patton reported in 1998-99 in his report of September 99 after the research they interviewed 1500 people they talked about the the 
response to the question, how confident are you about policing in your area? How much do you trust the police? How much confidence do you have in the police? Mm. Whilst it was split at something like 74% of Protestant unionists supported the police and trusted mm. the police, while it was something like only, only 49 or 50% in Catholic nationalist areas. Mm. When the question was changed to how much do you trust the police in your own area and that you have mm. a personal contact with, mm. they were both in the 70s. Yeah. So it's this yeah. thing about, you know, you must yeah. engage, you must see the person behind the uniform. Yes, definitely, and um, and whilst the context, the policing context is uh, is an unbelievably different between what you're describing in Northern Ireland and and in England, that's one of the things that I've talked a lot about in my book and on the podcast is about the the withdrawal of community policing in England and Wales from you know local local people has probably been the single most damaging thing as far as I can see, you know and. And I understand that that was done, you know, because of the lack of resources, loss of resources. But that that engagement at a local level um, and those relationships, those trusted relationships between cops and local people is is is, uh, yeah, absolutely fundamental, I would suggest. But um, so um, so in terms of your career, um, what because some people spend most of their time in sort of uniform roles or sort of like cycle backwards and forwards between plainclothes roles and uniform roles and what was your sort of preferred area of business I suppose my, my choice was to be uniform um right. my I suppose fantasy when I was a young guy mm-hmm. before I joined the police was to become a Northern Ireland Serpico you know <laughs> the, the undercover drug agent mm-hmm. and I applied for that's the only unit I ever applied for I applied for drug squad Right. And on the day I was promoted sergeant, I was notified I was being appointed as detective constable to drug squad. Right. So I had the choice of specialising or yeah. taking the stripes. And of course, mm-hmm. I took the stripes and uh, never uh, applied for any specialist unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, since then, I went through the ranks mm-hmm. in uniform uh, in all ranks. Yeah. And what was your uh, what was your most enjoyable? You don't have to have one. You can have you can have two or three if you want. Um, your most enjoyable roles uh, during your career in terms of the thing that you really thought this is just I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this kind of thing. Um, I never thought I can't believe I'm getting paid for this, but <laughs> <because> <laughs> I thought I earned my money. In fact, yeah. uh, I think we all earned our money, and I used yeah. to get into rows with civil servants and people who used to complain about young police officers. Um, uh, their, their fast and furious lifestyle sometimes when they came to visit us and tried to curtail overtime and they'd see yeah. a car park full of new cars and, and I'd say, you know, you know why they have those new cars? You know why they're enjoying life? Because they could be dead tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, so from that point of view, um, I, I believe, you know, you couldn't pay a police officer uh, too much for some yeah. of the roles they were doing down in the border and so on. But uh, joking aside, um, I can say something and I hesitate when I say it but I mean it I feel blessed and fortunate mm. that I never lost a police officer under my command mm. yeah and I like to think I can take some responsibility for that but there are many other mm. factors mm. obviously the luck of the draw being in the right place at the right time as opposed to the wrong place at the wrong time but mm. Where I enjoyed life most was in tough stations. I was a sergeant in Tennant Street. Mm. I was an inspector in Springfield Road. I was a chief inspector on the borders of Fermanagh. 
I was assistant chief constable responsible for South Armagh and Drum Cree, many dangerous places. And I always mm -hmm. led from the front, or at least tried to. And woe betide any police officer mm -hmm. who was sloppy. I mm -hmm. like to think I was a good boss, a fair boss, as we all do, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the type of guy who didn't last too long with me was the one who was sloppy when it came to their own personal security mm. or the security of their colleagues. I mm. would have been absolutely ruthless mm. uh, in that regard. So I enjoyed working in situations where you're working very closely with the army. Mm -hmm. um, as an inspector, I never stood or sat in, in my office until maybe 2 a.m. in the morning. I always patrolled with the guys. Um, mm. What was your and what was your relationship with the army? I mean, obviously you're ex-army yourself, so that yeah. would have helped, I suppose, because you all kind of talk the same language, I suppose. But generally speaking, did you have a good relationship, working relationship with excellent, the, um... excellent relationship? And I think I was lucky. I was young, mm. you know, I was fit. Yeah, I was running marathons, was playing football, and one British Army orientation championship. Not you know, mm. I, I could speak the language, I had infantry skills, and, and I'm saying that not in a big head of sense because many of us did. I'm not unique. But, um, you know, young army captains coming into places like uh, North Hard Street Mill or Flag Street in the, on the peace lines, dealing with the Ardoin, dealing with Divis, dealing with really tough areas, the mm. Shankill Road, the Falls Road, um, dealing with loyalists and Republican paramilitaries. A lot of those young soldiers, uh, thinking of captain rank, major rank and so on, I think they saw something in common that they had with me or I had with them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I engaged with them. I'd go to Germany and get involved in their training before they arrived and so on. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I had a very good relationship with the Army. And, and to this day, I still do. Mm. So, uh, you know, I think anyone listening to this um, who doesn't really understand the, the history of the, the RUC, um, you know, it's fair to say you'll know the numbers better than me, but more than 300 RUC officers lost their lives, didn't they, during that period of time between what? Yeah, 302 murders. 69 to 1998. 72 was the worst year when we lost 20 colleagues in one year. Which is just uh, really, really shocking statistics. Um, and it's very hard to even, even try and, um, you know, comprehend what that actually means. And, and then, as you know, Many, many, many more, you know, uh, experienced very, very serious life changing injuries uh, as well as that, as well as the mental and physical or uh, mental and psychological uh, yeah. impact of that. And so uh, in recognition of that, then the entire force was awarded the George Cross, weren't they? And you are the chair of the George Cross Foundation, isn't that right? You're right in the first bit, and I'm going to correct you if, if I may, Ian. Please, please uh, do. <laughs> and uh, I say this tongue in cheek yeah. uh, as a colleague. Um, the Royal Austrian Stalbury was awarded the George Cross, and in Her Majesty's citation in November 1999, she not only mentioned the bravery and the um, gallantry and professionalism of the police, but also their families. And that's right. really important. Twice in the citation, she mentions the families. Right. And then in 2000, when changes were being enacted by the Police Act Northern Ireland, um, a body known as the Royal Ulster Constabulary GC Foundation was established, of which I'm the chairman. Mm. And sadly, in my view, different people have a different view, it has become the short, shorthand to uh, the George Cross Foundation. So a lot of right. people think it's the RUC George Cross Foundation, as if it's about right. the George Cross. It's got 
nothing or little to do with George Cross. It's the Royal Arts Constabulary right. PC Foundation. The same as any of us could have post-nominals. Right. The organisation known as the Royal Arts Constabulary is what the foundation's about. But right. you're quite right, and, and many police officers use the shorthand, it's the George Cross Foundation. Yeah. It's actually the Royal Austin Salary Foundation. And there are a number of myths like that, which I'm yeah, yeah, very yeah, keen yeah. to... No, I'm very, very happy for you to correct me on that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's education, I suppose. But either, either way, it's testament to the unbelievable heroism and fortitude yeah. and sacrifice of all of those men and women and their families uh, over, over the years, because I've got very many... Uh, good friends who were in the RUC and some still are, um, and some of whom I'm sure over a beer or whatever you would know. I won't name them for obvious reasons, but um, yeah, and I'm under no illusion. I, I always felt a nagging sense of guilt, if I'm honest, because although I did some very interesting things in policing, and I've I've got no regrets at all in my policing, there was always a slightly nagging guilt for me that I wasn't there as part of the RUC doing my bit. And um, I console myself on that one on the basis that um, I did an awful lot of work in counterterrorism, uh, particularly against the provisional IRA and dissidents. And, and, you know, as part of the teams I was working on at the time in Special Branch, we successfully dismantled very large numbers of active service units operating on the mainland and i'm very proud of that but there is something there for me about feeling slightly uh guilty about the fact that i remember and i remember one man i will name um who you will know very well uh, jim gamble jim jim gamble I, I used to do some work with jim and his people in northern ireland when i was in special branch and uh I remember him making a bit of a barbed comment to me once along the lines of, you know, where, where were you kind of thing, you know? And I was, I know he was only joking. He was kind of pulling my leg, you know, but it, but I think he probably knew or at least sensed that there was that slight sense of guilt. You know what I mean? Does that, does that all make sense? You know? Well, it, it makes sense. And in fact, you know, I get the other bit, you know, why were you an idiot instead in Northern Ireland all the time? Why didn't you apply to be a chief constable in England? Or, you know, so I, I, hear the reverse and, and mm. uh, whilst I empathise in a sense with you, I, I see that I was committed to Northern Ireland. I know I could have had a career in other parts of the UK or indeed internationally before I retired. And I stuck to my guns. I wanted to be in Northern Ireland because to me it was a, a vocation. My family lived there. Mm. I was following in my dad's footsteps. My son was joining the place. You know, so there was something about I have skills mm. and I have an attachment to Northern Ireland. You know, it'd be lovely to be a chief constable in mm. a leafy suburban county somewhere but mm -hmm. uh, and I, I wish those well who did and mm -hmm. in fact uh, I spent last week with the chief constable Staffordshire who's a, an ex REC in Northern Ireland police officer Chris Noble a, a gentleman and uh, good luck to mm -hmm. him so there's many as a police officer as you know has mm -hmm. uh, including Jim Campbell have taken yeah. the leap into yeah, England done it get, the other way around yeah yeah get further promotions but no I, I, I can hear where you're coming from but look the way I look at it is it's quite simple. Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. The RUC mm. and PSNI are part of Northern Ireland policing, but they're also part of British policing, and we're mm. all in it together. In yeah. fact, I would even go further than that when it comes to countering violent extremism. Mm. It should be, you know, the good guys are, are, are global, you know, yeah, yeah. no matter oh, where yeah. you're located.
Absolutely, and we had an extremely good working relationship with uh, with the RUC, uh, particularly in the part of the organisation I was working in, uh, in Special Branch, you know, very, very good relationships. Um, uh, and as we did with Angarda Shikana as well, the Irish um, police, we did, uh, you know, uh, they were very helpful, albeit, you know, they were under no particular obligation legally to, to, to help us. But um, although I could be wrong on that, they may have been some sort of, I'm sure there was some sort of protocol somewhere. Well, there were agreements, of course, we're all part of yeah. Interpol as well. But um... yeah, but even so, it was very, as you know, very political. But um, but anyway, talking about the loss of life, uh, Stephen, um, how was it was it for you and your colleagues um, to to live under that constant fear of violence coming to you at your very doorstep uh, and and potentially your family as well? Now that's the thing, isn't it? Well, that's the raw nerve. That's the bit that I would say every policeman and policewoman um, is vulnerable when it comes to putting your own family at risk or them having to suffer because of your career choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll relay a, a little part of a sermon from Friday. I'm not an overly religious man. I am a church goer, but I'm not mm-hmm. a, a, a Bible thumper, as we call it, in Northern Ireland. Yeah, yeah. Um, the sermon at the National Memorial Arboretum, where we remembered our fallen colleagues just on Friday there, was taken by a former police officer who's now an ordained minister. Mm. And he talked about how his father, he and his brother were all RUC officers and they would go out and through their training, equipment, comradeship, good humour, banter, as we called it, um, they would know they were safe and well, or at least as well as could be expected. Meanwhile, the the mother or the wife was at home Mm. praying for the kids to Mm. come back or the husband to come back, uh, worrying every night. And that actually brought a tear to my eye Mm. when I thought about my own dear mother. Mm. Who, who prayed for me every night and my brother-in-law who was a police officer my father who was a police officer and then later my son so mm. it is those who are at home first of all have the worry yeah uh, and then it is of course part of our responsibility that we have brought that worry to them mm. so for me some of the most poignant memories i have are yes attending colleagues funerals and um mourning the loss of, of the, the the men and women i work with and and uh trying to make some sort of sense of the atrocities and continuing to keep morale up and all those things and through sport and through welfare issues and all the things we did, we tried to keep, um, uh, you know, morale high. Mm. But when I would come home at night, maybe after a 12 or 16 hour shift, I'm thinking when I was a young inspector in West Belfast, Mm. some of the most Mm. dangerous times, Mm. um, the first thing I would do is lift my baby daughter. She's maybe only a year old at that time Mm. and just sit with her for five minutes. Mm. And just, uh, yeah, grind, just, you know, just just realize, you know, that if I don't come back tomorrow, mm, yeah, this is yeah. a precious little moment. Yeah, and um, you know, it's 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 hard to put into words, but it, it was yeah. a really tough time. And like no. all police officers, I've had scares. You know, I've been yeah. uh, subject to an assassination attempt. I had to live in a police station for nine months undercover, specially evacuated out of my home. My kids living somewhere else with their mum and uh, me not able to see them for a while. You know, so those are tough, tough times. Kids having to move school, yeah. wives having to give up careers, houses having to be sold and, and yeah. you know, all the, yeah. the stress. Well, this is it. People in England and Wales and have got no clue, no clue at all. Um, even those officer, officers who maybe spent an entire career in, in even even in tough areas of England, it's, there's no comparison whatsoever. 
um, to the uh, risks that, that you and your colleagues were taking during that very long period of time. And psychologically, I've got no illusions that that must have been very wearing for people. Um, and I've no doubt that you probably, you know, many people would have probably struggled either at the time or afterwards, I'm quite sure. Well, yeah, yes, in a way. I mean, I remember having this argument with someone who said, you know, how did you cope? And yes, we all have coping mechanisms. In my case, a lot of it was to do with fitness and sport and friendship mm. and family and, you know, just have, having another life. You know, fishing mm, yeah. was everything to me, but at the same time, you know, I, I did have another life, thank goodness, where you go out and play a game of five-a-side football or mm. go and kick a ball with your kids or whatever. Um, fitness was was a big part of my life. But mm. uh, but I, w- I was I my training and my skills. I carried a gun twenty four hours a day everywhere. Mm. If mm. I was in the garden wearing a pair of shorts with a shirt off in a, in a in a summer's day, I had the gun underneath a bucket beside me or whatever. And then I remember mm. on some occasions having to go for that, thinking you're you know this is it, this is where it's going to happen. Maybe a van pulls up, a couple of guys jump out, wanting directions. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's a real situation. I remember I had a shovel in my hand, and you know that was. I was holding it up while I was scrabbling for my gun, just assuming the worst. This is my time. Yeah. Um. You know, several incidents like that. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm being honest, where you thought yeah. it's going to happen. Now, my son, for example, who's in police service in Northern Ireland, he leaves. Uh, you know, the, the, the gun is just a tool. It, it, it's yeah. not the same. Whereas, yeah, yeah. As you probably know, the statistics: almost as many police officers were killed off duty. Yeah. Yeah. Going home from work. That's right. Picking up their kids from school, going to church, going shopping. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you had to be vigilant. It all was the very, time. very strange. I mean, I've got a very good friend who I used to, um, who's in the REC, or I think he's just recently retired. Um, but in the early days, we were, let me think now, we were probably in our maybe late 20s. Uh, I was, I'd come home from, uh, you know, the Met and we'd meet up and go for beers and what have you and end up going back to, his house and his 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 his, his um I'm trying to think it was his girlfriend's brother or his brother. Can't, anyway another guy we'd be part of the group we'd go out with he was a gun nut and um would go back to his house and carry on having a few beers and then all these bloody guns would start appearing like unbelievable weaponry you know he'd be pulling out of out of out of uh, safes you know I mean it was like a military arsenal in his house mm. and I'm thinking oh my god you know i mean i think he was probably a little bit extreme but he was on the sort of the hardcore hmsus in those days yeah so so they were they were trained almost to the same level as the sas weren't they well they were trained by them yeah yeah so um so yeah so one thing i'd just like to sort of um just get your thoughts on because i've got my own views on all of this but i i find like a lot of people i don't want to get all political but like a lot of people who worked in the security services, policing and security services during that period of time, the thing that we all struggled with, I well, I find it very hard to sort of, um, you know, think about sometimes was the number of people who got released from prison under the Good Friday Agreement, uh, who had some, and some of those people we had in in the, in the Met Prom Police Special Branch, we had we had put them behind bars, and they'd received thirty to thirty five years for conspiracy to cause explosions explosions on the British mainland, and then within twelve months, they were all they were all out under the Good Friday Agreement, 
how does that feel for you and your colleagues now thinking about you know the things that some of those people did is that is that a very hard thing to deal with it was uh, not so much now time has passed we're going back to 1998 i suppose and mm. some have shown the true colors and have got involved in criminality and dissident organizations others have actually got involved in uh, different aspects of restorative justice or community work mm. trying to prevent young men in particular getting involved in what they were involved in you know yeah so, so common sense has prevailed in some cases um, mm. so it's like the prevent program any of these you know their successes and their failures yeah um, I was asked to explain to Her Majesty the Queen at one time the uh, police views mm. during the, that whole peace process and the change process to mm. police service in Northern Ireland. I was playing a key role and I had, I suppose, the ultimate privilege of meeting Her Majesty the Queen. And she asked that question mm. How do you feel about the prisoners being released and so on? And I said, As a police officer, I find it extremely difficult. Your Majesty's government told me that crime is crime, murder is murder. Mm. To follow police primacy and criminal justice rules, to use the rules of evidence, mm. to put people behind bars using the rule of law. Mm. But now Your Majesty's government is saying, you know, for the peace reconciliation programme, these are different types of crimes. Killing a police officer is not as bad as killing a civilian in a domestic murder, so you can get out after two years. And I said, it's extremely difficult as a lawman to reconcile mm. that. Mm. But as a father, mm. if it means that my children will live in a more peaceful Northern Ireland, I'll buy into it. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. pragmatic. No, and I think, and I think, I think that's absolutely the right um, position to take um, because certainly the reality is, um, you know, I'm, I go backwards and forwards quite a lot um, to see family, but the reality is that the life for those who have lived in a relatively peaceful environment um, is unrecognisable from the life that, that uh, you know, we experienced growing up, I suppose. And thank God for that. Um, but it, it does stick in the throat, I think, sometimes, you know. Um, and the thing that always used to wind me up, sorry, I'm on my hobby horse now, but uh, the thing that used to wind me up was that the fact that these people uh, were cowards who would sneak up um, behind officers in the street, uh, sneak up, um, put a bullet on their head and, and then run away. And then when they got caught, they would twist and turn and try and use the criminal law in order to, so on one hand, they're saying we're fighting a war. And these are agents of oppression that we are that are legitimate targets, and we they um, deserve to be murdered. But then, when they get caught, they then twist and turn and try and use the law of the land in order to, you know, get off. And and that that was something I used to. I know a lot of police officers I've spoken to over the years find used to find that very frustrating. You know, well, it still is that dilemma. Mm. Well, those two ends that don't square, or whatever the analogy is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ends yeah. don't meet, and the circle doesn't square. Um, yeah. That dilemma is still going on because you have, whether it be 
and I'm a human rights commissioner for Northern Ireland, by the way. Um, so I'm a mm. firm believer in human rights and yeah. human rights for police officers as well as mm. other human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, you have so-called human rights experts and others mm. uh, somehow trying to uh, still besmirch the good name of the Royal Austin Constabulary. Mm. There's been no evidence of collusion, for example, mm. but we're now hearing a term called collusive behaviour where mm. people can make conjecture as opposed to use evidence to come up to conclusions mm. uh, or to come to conclusions. So there's, there's, there's a whole issue around this. And, and I go back to a, a period in my life from 1999 to 2001 when I was engaged in helping to lead an organization, uh, work with an organization called Mediation Network, where we took police officers into safe places, mostly mm. in the USA. And um, we had some tough talking between men and women, Protestant and Catholic, young and old, mm. various ranks, mm-hmm. to see what was the culture? What were, what were the negative parts of culture? What do we need to do about it? Mm. And there was tears shed and there was mm. some hard truths told. And yeah. we, we decided to try to do something about the culture. But then we also started to engage with former prisoners and, and former terrorists Mm. And uh, again, try to reconcile and work out, you know, how can we avoid this ever happening in the past? Why do you see a police officer as a as a demon who can be murdered without any thought? Uh, mm. And I remember in one of the exercises, it was called the empty chair exercise. You go in this circle and you talk to the empty chair, you can put someone in it, whether it be your mother or a priest or paramilitary mm. whatever mm-hmm. uh, and you 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 talk to, but you could also bring someone from the group into the circle in the empty into the empty seat and confront them and former terrorists put me in the seat and started talking you know steve you and i are just the same you know we're, we're both combatants we're just mm-hmm. old soldiers both doing the same thing you know and we're all victims of our our context and i said don't don't dare don't ever try to equate me with what you did. Your organization tortured, murdered, you mm. even killed your own. Mm. You know, and, and you yeah. want to try to label me with that, you know, and, yeah. and sadly there are people in Ireland who try to think that, mm. you know, um, paramilitaries and police officers somehow can be equated uh, in, yeah. in terms of their uh, the roles they played are total yeah. nonsense, total nonsense. Yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't there? There's so much mythology, isn't there, on that side, I think, around uh, this sort of culture of victimhood and whatnot, that, um, which feeds that, you know, those very twisted beliefs or sense of legitimacy or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, you see it, you see it, um, you see it in, in England and Wales as well with certain criminal groups who will say, well, um, you know, nobody cares about us. Uh, nobody's ever cared about us. Uh, and that, that therefore means it's okay to go running around dealing drugs and carrying guns and shooting each other um, because, you know, we are the forgotten, you know, and it's just like, well, no, right is right and wrong is wrong, I'm afraid. It doesn't really matter to me anyway. It doesn't really matter, um, you know, where you were brought up or, you know, but um, so in terms of your life post policing, then um, you've obviously been very phenomenally busy um, and uh, you've traveled widely, haven't you? So just give us a flavor of the kind of stuff that you've been doing. Well, I was fortunate before I left the police to have had a number of international assignments. I was invited to uh, 
write the national strategy for Mongolia for community policing. So over three years, I'd worked back and forth with them, a number of international agencies, I'd been in Serbia, Indonesia, all sorts of places working on uh, projects. And uh, an organization in Northern Ireland called NICO, Northern Ireland Cooperation Overseas, would be a little bit like a foreign Commonwealth development office within Northern Ireland where they send public service expertise around the world. In fact, they've mm-hmm. sent over 400 Northern Ireland police officers around the world on projects. That's just NICO. Right. And then you add to the, the UN, OSCE, EU, all those different bodies that have employed Northern Ireland police officers. Mm-hmm. I was um, working closely with NICO. In fact, I ended up on their board for eight years when I mm-hmm. retired from the police. But I already had a flavour of international work. Mm-hmm. And um, when I applied to be Deputy Chief Constable of, of, of Northern Ireland, um, I was told in no uncertain terms that my face didn't fit anymore. Uh, my profile wasn't uh, yeah. what was required. Yeah. Uh, and my old buddy, Hugh Yard, who I'd known for years, in fact, we had a cup of tea last week together. Um, at least he was honest with me and, and uh, I made a conscious decision to leave in good terms. And uh, I went to Iraq on a foreign office assignment uh, in the rank of deputy chief constable in the couple of months after the invasion. Um, right. Saddam was removed. So I, I did three, sorry, six months as a, as a senior police officer, as the director of law and order for the whole of southern Iraq. Mm. And um, saw a lot of things were going wrong, that mm. the Americans in particular, their US-led coalition, was not getting right in terms of mm. the post-invasion planning, the reconstruction. Sort of hearts and, and minds. That, well, even, even the professional training of police officers, you know, and all the mistakes mm. they made disbanding the Iraqi army and leaving all these men with military training and weapons and so on running around the country disgruntled. Mm. There was so much that, from a Northern Ireland perspective, was yes. a, a problem waiting to happen or a problem yeah. being caused. That um, as soon as I left the police, then I was engaged by the European Union to design and lead an intervention, a rule of justice, sorry, rule of law uh, intervention, criminal justice um, in Iraq. So I designed a program, first ever um, integrated program that the EU ever ran. The problem was, I'll not bore you too much about this, but the problem was police, senior police were blaming the judges for not Mm -hmm. understanding the problems that police officers had in Iraq trying to gain evidence and prosecute people. You know, shades of Northern Ireland here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no one wants to support or, or, or contribute to the uh, evidence gathering of, of, of police if there's a likelihood they're going to be shot and being intimidated and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, policing was accused of being sectarian, whether you were up mm-hmm. in the north as a Kurd or whether you're in the middle as a, a Sunni or down the south as a Shia. There's all sorts of uh, issues. Uh, the prison service were getting the blame for poor conditions and torture and so on, and the police were losing cases because of abuse and lack of um, protocols. So my view was, well, if they're all complaining about each other, train them together. So I designed a program to train Iraqi judges, police officers, the rank of colonel and above, prison Mm. managers and magistrates all together, not telling them how to do it, Mm. but showing them what could be a vision of success for Mm. Iraq. So I Mm. took them in groups of maybe 30 or 40 to Italy, to Spain, to the UK, to every member state except two out of the 27 member states to show them what um, could look like. Over 3,000 people went through that program. And I think it made mm-hmm. a small, but hopefully significant contribution to criminal justice and rule of law in Iraq. So I did that for five years. It was mm-hmm. the longest serving ever EU head of mission. And when I finished that job in 2010, I was 
flown over to New York by a man who became a very close friend, Ali Sufan, who is the uh, director of the Sufan Group, who Ali was an FBI agent, he investigated 9-11, um, the USS Cole bombings, the East African bombings, there's been documentaries, books written about him, TV series, and uh, he and his wife, me and my wife would still be very friendly. So he offered me a job and um, I became vice president of his company and we did a lot of work all around the world on countering violent extremism, uh, published pamphlets, delivered training, leadership mentoring, all, all, all those things until I decided um, time to put the, <laughs> time to put the beat up slightly uh, more and uh, I've run my own business, but uh, right. obviously with COVID and so on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That. So I spent more and more time at home, put it that well, way. I'm not, I'm not I've got to say, Ali, Ali Sufan sounds like a fantastic podcast guest, podcast guest. If you can put in a good word for me, that would well, be great. Well, I'm, I'm having a meeting tomorrow in the hope that I'll bring him over to Northern Ireland to be the second uh, speaker at what I have started as the annual IUC GC Foundation Lecture. Um, much sought after speaker and, mm. and uh, if, you, if you don't know much about him, ha have a yeah. check out. About, you know, I'm talking to your listeners, you know, yeah, Alex yeah. one of the most inspirational uh, and effective people I've ever worked with. Well, yeah, well, I mean, I, 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 I really take my hat off to the the breadth and depth uh, and seriousness. That's the thing, isn't it? The seriousness of of all of this, and uh, you know the the fact that you've been able to pick up all of that learning from a very long and successful career in the most difficult circumstances imaginable, and you know take that and translate it into to other um, jurisdictions is is fantastic and uh, my god if anyone deserves to put their feet up i think you you must do i'm telling you but um so um in terms of the foundation is that uh, is that sort of a full-time role for you or is it sort of a part-time thing it's supposed to be part-time the legislature i'm appointed by the department of justice and the role of the foundation is to mark the sacrifices and mm. honor the achievements of the iuc so we run a memorial garden we run mm. a bursary scheme we said psni officers around the world to study and research subjects. We um, run different events and services to commemorate the IEC. We've just about to publish a book. Myself, and another guy, I've co-authored a book on the Rolochic Stubbery. We have uh, sponsored other people's writings. We have an annual lecture. We have a conference and stakeholders where we meet the widows and the bereaved parents, the disabled police, the wounded police all yeah. those groups to try to look at what joint initiatives we can do to mm -hmm. support them. I love the thing you were telling me about when we spoke on the phone about the oral history project. Yeah, that's that's an interesting one. Um, sadly, as police officers pass on, those who served in the early years of the Troubles and even before that, in the 50s, and mm. in some cases, some remember the... World War II, even as children, but we, we lost seven REC officers during the Blitz. And mm -hmm. um, all those stories we've tried to capture in an oral history archive. Mm -hmm. We have trained interviewers. We have a, a digital program now that allows us to record with over 350 interviews. Mm -hmm. And uh, I encourage students, not just local students, but we've had international students from all over, USA, Canada, Italy, Germany, Belgium, uh, for example, uh, and England, of course, uh, coming to us to interrogate the uh, the oral history archive. And quite often we'll put them with uh, live subjects as well. You know, yeah. still men and, and women. 
yeah. but men in their 90s and 80s and, and uh, people who served in the RUC yeah. who are willing to, you know, engage with young people and tell yeah. them their stories. Yeah, and, and I'll be people, that myself. Uh, can people access? Well, you know, one of the reasons I do this podcast is for exactly that reason, because the people yeah. I'm speaking to have got a fantastic, so much um, knowledge, wisdom and stories to tell. And, and I just think it's incredibly important <coughs> to try and capture that for for future generations. And and so that that archive you describe is can people access that online? I mean, or is that something you need to kind of go through formal channels? No, there, ha there has there has to be this like all oral history projects. There is a sort of a, a best practice and protocols that have to be adhered right. to. Um, right. it's, it's done in our case under a, a supervised control at, right. the, at the minute. You know, yeah, yeah. what we're trying to do is identify uh, like a thematic interrogation program where maybe mm. something less controversial could be tapped in. At the minute, it's done with a, a trained interviewer, uh, someone yeah. who can help the, the person doing the research. But mm -hmm. it's, been, it's been tapped into quite successfully recently. People have used it for their master's degrees, thesis yeah. and so on. Brilliant. And I, I'm a big fan of Colin Breen. I've finished reading one of his books. Um, I'm sure you'll know him well. Um, yeah, he served with me for a while. Very entertaining, and uh, you know, I would thoroughly recommend anyone who wants to um, a force like no other, isn't it? That's the book, um, and I think he's done two or three, three volumes. Three volumes. Being, of it. Uh, yeah. he, he was hanging up the pen, but he's been, I think, uh, convinced that another volume is probably again. out there. Yeah, no, it's it's it's. Uh, really gripping stuff and i thoroughly recommend anyone listening to this um you know once you finish reading my book you can read some of collins <laughs> <laughs> gotta get that in you know but listen stephen it's been an absolute joy um talking to you um fascinating one of the most fascinating conversations i've had on the podcast to date really brilliant and i i genuinely thank you so much for all of the work that you've done your bravery, your your uh, resilience, and to all of the men and women of the Royal Ulster Constabulary and, and what is now the PSNI, Police Service of Northern Ireland, I, I take my hat off to you and I thank you very much for your service and for everything you've done to keep the people of Northern Ireland safe um, or as safe as they could have been in the dreadful circumstances that they find themselves. And, and thank you for coming on the podcast and talking to me. Well, thanks for those kind words. and. Um... I hope your listeners find something interesting. If they're interested in the Royal Arts Constabulary GC Foundation, we have a website, we have an office. They'd be more than willing to contact us. We'll be easy enough found. Royal Arts Constabulary GC Foundation. So thanks for the opportunity, and I appreciate all the work you're doing as well, and I appreciate the platform you've given me to say a few words, and I uh, wish you well in the future. Thank you ever so much. And uh, if I'm in Northern Ireland, I'll look you up and we can have a pint oh, or whatever. Please do. I'll tell you all the stories that I couldn't relate today. <laughs> and likewise, likewise. Thanks okay, a million. You take care. God bless you. Thank you bye -bye. very much. Bye bye, bye 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 bye. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd be really grateful if you can give it a five star review on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Equally, if you've read my book and enjoyed it, then I'd be really grateful if you'd give it a five-star review on Amazon, as that's probably the only platform you can use to review books, apart from Goodreads, I think. And if you want to contact me to tell me anything or ask me anything, you can do that uh, by sending an email to ian, I-A-I-N, at ik.com 
www.ethicalinsights.com, which is my work email address. And finally, if you'd like to be part of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot Facebook site, you can find it, funnily enough, on Facebook. Thanks a lot. Oh, <laughs>